but I want to save people from a lifetime of heartache and woe and, and bring healing into their life. Hey everyone, Gomer here. Before we get started, we wanted to take a minute and ask for your help. Since 2014, Ascension has been creating free Catholic YouTube videos, podcasts, and articles to help people like you discover the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith. Ascension releases 18 free videos and podcasts every week and has reached millions of people with the message of God's love. While this content is free to consume, it's not free to make. So to help the offset the increasing cost of production, we're asking for your financial support to continue bringing this life-changing content to people who are searching for Christ. If you or someone you know has personally benefited from Ascension's work, please consider financially supporting this podcast. Any amount is truly appreciated, and we'll go to things like Ascension Presents YouTube channel, The Bible in a Year, Everyone Loves, The Handsome Father Mike Schmitz, and this show. Right, You love every knee shall bow, so let's keep it going. To make a gift, please visit ascensionpress.com slash support or click the link in the description of the show. Again, that's ascensionpress.com slash support. And whether you're able to support financially or not, please keep the entire Ascension team in your prayers. We thank you so much for your incredible support. God bless. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. Today is a special episode because it is a two-parter with Dr. Abigail Favale. Dr. Abigail Favale agreed to come back and answer the question, what is a woman? Because I think her argument, her example, her definition is even better than the one by the documentary, which is an adult female human. What is a woman actually involves a lot of subtle nuance in order to adequately answer the objections and hesitations of this modern age. Yes, that means bringing in a little St. Thomas Aquinas, baby. You know, I love it. It's going to be awesome. Again, that Thomistic personalism sneaks up and gets you 10 times out of 10. So without further ado, here's me and Dave with Dr. Abigail Favale. Hey, everyone. We are here with Dr. Favale. She agreed to hop back on to answer what could be the most pressing question within gender studies and women's studies that's out there today, which is what is a woman? What is a woman? Now you take two chapters to answer it in your book, Genesis of gender. You have, I love how all your chapter, I'm, I'm like a nerd for chapter titles because <laughs> I think that can be such an awesome creative, whatever. And I love how yours are all one word. So that yeah. one chapter is sex and the next one's gender. So what is a woman? Yeah. Well, thank you for re <laughs> like recognizing that I did answer that in my book because I, there was actually a negative review of it from someone who said that I never answered that question. I was like, what? I spent two chapters on it. Yeah. Like anyway. Yeah. So thank you for reading the book. Huh. Four times now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think there's, there's kind of two levels at which to approach this question. There's the natural and the supernatural. So first I'll go with the natural and this definition requires no faith in God whatsoever. It's just simply based on what we can observe in the world of nature. And that is that a woman is the kind of human being whose whole body is organized according to the potential to gestate life within her. So there's a couple of key words in there that I want to highlight. One so is the, that- the potential to gestate life within her. 
So yes. that's the definition. Or you could just say life. the potential to gestate life because gestate, you know, its definition includes that. Yeah. For now, wait till they have <laughs> those wombs in, in China uh, and yes. all that stuff. Anyway, yeah. Right. So <laughs> the first thing I would want to highlight or draw attention to is like it's the organization of the whole body. So it's not just about mm-hmm. a couple of parts here and there that can be kind of like switched out or changed, right? So this definition would include someone who's had a hysterectomy, for example, because even if you lose a a part of the whole, the whole itself is still organized according to a specific procreative potential. And potential is another important word here. So that's an inherent potential that can be actualized. So in other words, it doesn't have to be actualized to nonetheless exist. And this is why this definition works even in the cases of infertility. Yeah. And in fact, actually, even the category of infertility points toward this inherent potential that's right. unable to be actualized for right. some reason. Right. So we wouldn't look at a man and say, oh, he can't get pregnant. Like maybe he's infertile. Right. That would be kind of an absurd thing to say because he doesn't have the inherent potential for pregnancy. Right. So his fertility depends upon a different procreative role. Anyway. Yeah, you use the great analogy of your daughter in kindergarten learning to write, what was it, angel, A-J-L, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, she's in kindergarten for two weeks and she's spelling words. But mm-hmm. she has the potential for language and speech and writing and reading. But if you take your cat, she can spend all nine lives in kindergarten and she'll never produce A-J-L, let alone anything else. So there's no potency there. There's no potential. Right, exactly. So human beings come with certain kinds of potentials that can be cultivated, that can be actualized. And even if they're never actualized, they still exist. So that's why this definition I'm giving, it holds for prepubescent girls. It holds for postmenopausal women. It holds for women who do actually procreate and those who don't, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what the natural, at the natural level, that's what a woman is. When I first heard it, it reminded me of the pro-life argument when you're arguing with pro-choicers about when is it permissible to take human life? And a, a large part of it, like there's this famous debate that just happened between Trent Horn and Destiny, who's a big YouTuber. His thing is, no, you're allowed to abort until they become conscious. And when they have a conscious experience, then they're a person. And then that argument is so slippery because you have people in temporary comas who are not conscious. So you're like, okay, have they depersonalized? And then why work to repersonalize? You know, all the, all the stuff that goes with it. And then you would simply say, no, 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 these like an embryo at different stages of development is a human person because they have the potentialities within them that will one day maybe be actualized, right? So you don't have to say like a priest who is celibate his whole life and a virgin his whole life has the potencies of sexuality, sexual reproduction, all that stuff, but he doesn't actualize it. That doesn't make him not a man, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have... The, the interesting thing is when they're trying to push the intersex label and you did a great walkthrough in the book on like, how did intersex become, and we had mentioned the, in the previous episode, but how did intersex become such a dominant thing in our, in this gender studies debate? And one of it was this doctor who was a researcher who basically said it's like 7% or something like that, or of the population. And it's less than 0.02% or something like that, because she lumped in women who have like PCOS. And all these things, if so, again, we come back to, like, these are like patterns. We come back to, they've exaggerated the stereotypes of what is a woman. So, hairy women, sorry, you're intersex now. My wife with PCOS, sorry, you're, you know, like, all of these things. And they just go through the list of accidental properties or situations. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, you're no longer a woman. It's like, eh, eh. 
Right. And there's also a forgetting there of how all of these different attributes or characteristics like come together in a set yeah. that is organized according to this particular potential, like the whole thing. The whole thing. And which is why, you know, for a lot of those more severe DSDs, they result in infertility, mm-hmm. right? Because like the disruption to sexual development prevents that potential from being actualized. Right? Yeah. So. My heart went pitter-pat when you uh, started bringing in, like, the way to solve this problem is with St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle. I was like, go on. (laughs) Yeah, so potentiality. So when people – let's think of it from an apologetics perspective, right? So if someone were to say to you, what is a woman? And you would answer, it's a person who is capable of gestating life within, who has the potentialities. How do we make that known in a more, like, I, I don't know, like, I'm already thinking of not necessarily objections, but you hear these common refrains of, well, what about people who have, and this is what I think your chapter does a great job in, what about people who have both sexual organs or both, you know, they, they have these, these developmental things, are they a third gender? Yeah, and that's where the attention to the whole organism matters, right? Because in the much more complex disorders of sexual development, even in those cases, which by definition are particular. Mm. And so they should be seen as an individual, right? I mean, one of the most complex DSDs is called mosaicism, where an individual actually, different cells of the individual have XY, other XX. So even from a genetic level, wow. there's wow. ambiguity. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so, but how that actually looks in the body as it develops, you know, you might have someone who has mosaicism who nonetheless develops ovaries and is able to have, get pregnant, right? So you, by definition, you can't generalize about very complex DSDs. You have to see what's going on in the person, right? Even in that case, if you look at the body as a whole and through the sexual development process over time, femaleness or maleness will predominate. So Mm. there's never been in recorded medical history a case of a human being who is able to adopt both the male and the procreative role, who has, in other words, both potentials, both potencies, Mm -hmm. right? So either way, even even when there is like ovotestes is another very complex DSD where it's almost like the the ovaries and the testes kind of combine um, or they don't differentiate mm. in a usual way. So then again, you have to kind of see how the body develops. And and also if if there's a need for medical interventions just to support the health of the person, right? Because there's this long sorted history of unnecessary genital surgeries on intersex babies, which was just really for cosmetic reasons. Um, And so intersex activism arose in the 1990s in response to those, to unnecessary medicalization. And so what's interesting to me is that the history of intersex activism has been much much about preserving bodily integrity, kind of making room for the body as it is, providing medical support if there is, you know, actually a health risk happening, which sometimes there is. So it's very interesting to me. That's another irony I see where the intersex card is being played in a movement that does not respect bodily integrity as a value, as like a grounding value. And you have the same procedures, in fact, that intersex people spoke out against their use on infants. You know, those are the same kind of sex change procedures that are used voluntarily for people who want to transition, right? So yeah, it's there's really meaningful differences yeah. between these two activist movements that I think needs to be part of the conversation. Here's a question for you, and maybe just t- take take a shot at this, all right? So 
I'm not. I don't like apologetics. Gomer's the apologetics guy. I I hate them. I think we should just leave them behind and just forget about them all. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay yeah. Compared to that, I am the apologetics guy. Yeah, Go on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have a friend, and and this is not an uncommon story. Okay, I hear this all the time. And her daughter went to possibly a more extreme school, but this happens even at like a lot of big schools. Okay, daughter, perfectly wonderful child, great relationship with her parents goes to Sarah Lawrence College, comes home Christmas break, and they're like, oh, she speaks like a new language. It's very strange. And then after a year at Sarah Lawrence College, it comes home and it's like she has adopted an entirely Marxist language, is deconstructing the patriarchy within their family and all of these kinds of things. And because of that associates Christianity with the, you know, that all these things she's rejecting and has left any semblance of religion spirituality in that way and the parents are like well the catechism says right <laughs> and it's just like not working and i just wondered like if a parent is just desperate to try to evangelize their child do you have any thoughts about how to reach someone who's in that deep like using the language espousing all of the ideologies you know what do you suggest you know honestly i would suggest just really focusing on strengthening the relationship and loving them unconditionally, like manifesting that in the relationship. And then being responsive when conversations open. But when that opens, being genuinely curious about what the other person thinks, not looking for the like, gotcha, right? right Which is, right. that's a logical fallacy, you know? Like, <laughs> right. but first I would say, <laughs> like trying to connect with shared values you know, I, I try to do this in my own work in the sense that I, for example, if I if I write about abortion, I'm often making the pro-woman feminist case against abortion, yeah. right? So it kind of like disrupts the programming yeah. a little bit. Like, wait a second, you're saying something like heretical from a feminist perspective that you're against abortion, but then you're also appealing to these deeply held feminist values. Yeah. Like, that's interesting, right? So, so I would say that that's probably the approach I would take. One that's re- relational. One that also really has respect for, especially an adult child's freedom, because I think there's a temptation for us all, but I think especially parents feel this strongly. I think there's a temptation to want to kind of control someone's conversion, right? Oh, and to yeah. kind of oh, yeah. curate it according to our timing, no right? Question. But yeah. There's a, a real healthy differentiation process that's happening in adolescence and early adulthood that if, if a parent, I think, tries to just lock that down and not sort of, res- you know, ha- show some respect there for an adult person's freedom to begin to make his or her choices and to kind of establish their own worldview, then I think that can actually backfire. So I would say have patience and then actively entrust the child to marry in prayer regularly. Like that's where the, you know, the kind of hand-wringy feelings should go to prayer. Yeah. They shouldn't go to like, Finding the right online YouTube video to send them or just read this woman's book that I read. You know, it's like, no. And and then build the love in the relationship because that's what will that's what will speak more than anything and trust to God. Right. So that's my advice. Perfect. Nice. Mine would be to cut her off completely and say, <laughs> if you want to reject who I am and how much I loved you and everything I gave, good luck with college. 
see, you say, just see what you, you say that jokingly, mm-hmm. but I, you know, this. Oh no, I know a people lot. do that. Oh, it happens. There, there is a with a people lot. who are same sex attracted. Mm-hmm. It happens all absolutely, the time. or all you know, or people who want to who struggle with their gender and want to transition. Yeah. And so I would say, like, I would take a hard stand against that kind of ultimatum. <laughs> yeah. Or okay, you know, forced dependency. <laughs> like there are ways to draw right. boundaries within that. You know, maybe when it comes to like paying for someone's medical care if they want yeah. to transition or something like that. Right. But you know, putting someone, I mean, that's never, that's the thing like that, that kind of coercion, that's mm. never loving. And the thing is like, God does not work that way. Like God is so gentle with us. Like there are times when I'm like, come on, you know, batter my heart three person to God, you know, oh, and he no, just, yeah. like, oh, no. you know, he's just so much more patient and tender than human beings are. Mm-hmm. And he is not coercive. Right. So I just think that the desire for control, like, is the root human sin, the desire to be coercive, to be God, and then to use that power badly. Yeah. Didn't you listen to Uncle Parker or Uncle, uh, what? oh, man, I'm blanking on his name. Great power comes great responsibility. Come Uncle. On. There's a, actually a whole subgenre on, I don't know if it's TikTok or YouTube, but they have, my daughter went to school and after her freshman year, look at her, right? And it's this whole, like, what happened to my daughter kind of hashtag. And it's hundreds of videos of who's like here's a picture of her senior year here's a picture of her coming home at the end of her freshman year and she's like a totally different person and this experience of like oh my gosh i have lost my child to the ideologues right here's the, here's the thing though that this is a cl- that's a classic example of like what she said about control oh yeah because like i had tons of friends who were in fraternities and the girls looked the same but they were not this. I mean, it was way worse than losing them to ideologues. Yeah. I hate to say it. Like, I mean, that was, it was a terrible culture of basically rape. I mean, it was awful, you know? And, and I, I guess like, I just think like, do you want your kid to look differently and talk differently? Or do you want them to have a relationship with Jesus? Like that's, mm-hmm. I think that's yeah, what's the end goal of what you're doing constantly here. Ask yourself. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, honestly, that's the big question. What is a woman? How do we articulate it? How do we talk about it? My big fear is like, it's just shocking. So, okay. How about this? What do you think when you see those news clips of people in the government who can't answer, you know, cause that's like the gotcha question now, like, can you yeah. do me a favor and define what is a woman? And they're like, no, I don't believe it. What, what do you think when you hear this? Cause in your own story, right. You, you were accused by a male student of like, oh, you can't think that that's essentialism. You know, and you're like, oh, isn't that funny? A male student is teaching me how to think, right? And so what do you think of when you when you hear, you know, what what is it, the general surgeon or whoever just be like, yeah, I don't know. I can't define what it means to be a woman or what is a woman. How do you experience that as someone who has thought long and hard about these things for years? I mean, I, I honestly hear cowardice. That's what I think. Yeah. I think that that's cowardice in that particular case. Mm-hmm. You know, of someone who now I don't think that's true for people who just honestly are genuinely confused and do not have clear thinking about what sex and gender are, you know, but I think for the most part, it is people rightly sensing that this is like, you know, a no win scenario politically (laughs) to answer this question that like, no matter what you say in this moment, you're going to get shot in the face. Right. So I, I, you know, that's what I see is the, like, Oh, I'm going to duck and roll that one as much as I can. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately that just lends to the confusion, right? Because then the people who can and should be thinking clearly about this are shirking that responsibility. And so then we just continue to have the confusion about what it is even means to be 
a sexually differentiated mammalian species. Like it's not that difficult, right? <laughs> like we're mammals. Like that's, I mean, again, like on the natural level, <laughs> like I'm not talking about anything like divine revelation here, whatever. Yeah. I'm just talking about like we're mammals. So a woman is a female human being. And since we're mammals, that means her body is arranged to gestate. Yeah. You know? it, was, it was after our last conversation with you, I, I was like up in the middle of the night thinking about, I mean, when you were talking about like language and how there's really no bottom to it, like there's like no foundation for all this. It reminded me of like the French Revolution where you're like, even the people who were friends with Robespierre were like, what's what's he going to condemn tomorrow? Like, is it going to be me? Is it going to be? And the language was so important then. They were so crazy about it at yeah. that time. Scary. Yeah, that's see to me, that's the danger of these power-based ideological games is this one guy in um who was raised in a marxist country he said you could be flawless in your regurgitation of marx and lenin and still end up in a concentration camp right because it right. wasn't about orthodoxy it was about getting in alignment with whatever was that day's orthodoxy right right it wasn't about you know and and that's the thing that i have about language you know i think of george orwell's politics of the English language you think of 1984 and the memory hole and all of these things that now are like the phrase dead naming like I can understand it from a trans person perspective of like no that's not who I was that's what you named me but this is who I am there's a youtuber that I follow he's a tech guy and he just came out as Emily and he's like this is who I am so if you reference his previous if you go along with it to a certain extent you are participating in the lie and that's my fear Right. That's I think my greatest fear is like there is so much confusion intentionally so that I feel like if I don't say the truth with love, I'm participating in other people's destruction. If I don't say the truth, I'm participating in some girl who is going to get, you know, top surgery or some boy who's going to get bottom surgery and then have these, you know, horror shows uh, with medically with themselves for the rest of their lives. And if we don't speak out now, loudly and i don't want to be one of those annoying culture warrior people who are really just doing it for the likes but i want to save people from a lifetime of heartache and woe and, and bring healing into their life but it's like i i know that's one thing to navigate your workplace when they're telling you to put pronouns in your emails mm -hmm. and and all this but it's another thing to to publicly hide when i think right. the only avenue here is is martyrdom career suicide as well like i don't know how to deal is what i'm saying and i'm scared and i'm scared <laughs> Hold me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's like, uh, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I have the tendency to be like, that's it. I'm running for office. Right. Or I'm like, that's it. I'm leading the movement. But really every time I've ever, I mean, not that I've ever done that, but like, it's just not effective. Like, right. The effective thing is to invite people into your life and to love them and to, right. you know, let, let Jesus change them on their own. You know, and, I mean, that's what I did with you, Gomer. So, yeah. Yeah. And I do feel loved. I do feel loved. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you dr favali is there anything else you want to you want to add or you, you want to wrap it up yeah i mean i guess on that on what you were saying like i feel that tension so intensely mm -hmm. right and i think because of my background in language and being immersed in this worldview for a decade both just personally but also professionally right i think coming out of that now i have I have like a, such a deep felt desire to be attached to the truth and for my words to be true. For me, like, you know, I, I, I run 
you know, my conscience really gets like tweaked at the thought of using some of these terminologies, right? Because of what you were saying, like, I don't want to be kind of participating in this collective confusion, like this obfuscation of reality, right? But at the same time, this is where the pain point is. Language is also the bridge to any kind of relationship with Mm -hmm. someone, right? So I do think there are times when in order to create that relational bridge, you have to be able to kind of enter into someone's world enough to establish that. But at the same time, you can't enter into their world so where you're just like, and I'm here in your world with you and we'll just hang out here. You know, it's like you also have to remain rooted in the truth, right? And yeah. so it's it's really tricky. And I think, it ha- I think it has to be carefully discerned, like how to use language in those kind of more complex relational circumstances yeah. in terms of like what your role is, whether you have kind of a horizontal relationship with that person. Like, is this your neighbor? You know, is this a friend from high school and you're both adults, right? Like that's... As opposed to, are you a parent and this is your child, or are you a priest and this is your parishioner, right? Where there's more of a, a horizontal relationship there, and and I think it, any linguistic concessions always have to be paired with a willingness to kind of speak the truth in a fuller and kind of holistic way, right? So anyway, I think it's really tricky, but I I feel the the weight of what language can do and how language is being misused. In a way that like some of the people, so I, you know, I, some people I work with, not at Notre Dame, but just kind of in this space around gender in the Catholic world, you know, I think who, especially who have more of a kind of pastoral experience than I do, don't feel as conflicted as I do about, say, using someone's pronouns. Whereas for me, like, I just, yeah, it, I feel really burdened by it. Yeah. Even though I also know that there, there could be instances where the prudential thing to do would be to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That was the thing I appreciated most about your interview with Matt Frad. It was the discussion about the word feminist. He was like, I mean, is it time to just sack it completely? And I really liked what you said because I do think that word is a bridge for a lot of people. I, my wife used to talk about it often, how like, well, what about like Jesus as a feminist, you know? And, and there would be people who'd be like, don't even say that. Don't even, could, how could you ever say it, right? But I, I appreciated that, that discussion because I think you're right. It, it is a bridge of trust often. I think you hit something in your statement that I'm going to think long and hard about. Because one of the things that we use to try to equip people to evangelize is like helpful mental tools for different occasions, right? And one of those, Reverend Timothy Keller came up with A-B doctrines. A doctrines are those things readily accepted by culture. B doctrines are those things rejected by the culture, the dominant culture. So for instance, if you're going to talk about being pro-life, or you're going to talk about whatever you you want to get the other side to accept the gospel truth. You send the B doctrines with a whole bunch of A doctrines, right? And so, right. so he talks about like you're trying to float a bunch of rocks, which are B doctrines, on a raft of wood, which are A doctrines. So he's like, yeah, you could just throw the rocks over and hope you hit and kill people with them, or you could float them on top of the A doctrines on top of the wood. So that, like that's a strategy that we that we encourage people to use. But I think uh, also contextualizing our relationships between vertical and horizontal, like just seeing those as like, OK, I'm a person in authority. I have this, you know, I'm a parent. I'm an employer. I'm a priest. You know, I'm trying to go with alliteration there. It's more effective. Um, podcaster. I'm a podcaster, parent, priest. Podcaster, I think, is right above Pope. But uh, so you have this <laughs> you have this vertical alignment requires a different set of tools for than a horizontal alignment i'm not going to talk to a peer the way i would my my child or the way and i think that's a that's a handy metric that i need to think through 
in these conversations because I think that can be that can be a powerful uh yeah mental tool for people. Thank you. I have it written down in my dream journal now. So this is pretty exciting. <laughs> it's a unicorn dream journal. <laughs> it has one of those leather things that you have a little leather string that I can tie it close with. It's beautiful. Well thanks guys for yeah. following up. No, yeah, no, and no, thanks for great. thanks for being available for us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're awesome. God bless all the work you do at Notre Dame at the McGrath Institute and all that stuff. And we'll have all the links to stuff that people can find publicly. And then, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Awesome. Okay, great. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.